From 2003 to 2018, the show Mythbusters ran its series. It was a weekly show that ran originally. It was hosted by two special effects artists, Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman. It was their responsibility on this show to go through various what they call scientific experiments to test common myths that had been propagated in popular culture and songs and adages that individuals had just kind of passed along over time as if they were true. And they would use scientific methods to test whether those things were true, even those common colloquial phrases that we sometimes use. And as you can imagine, they often disappointed individuals and broke people's hearts. For example, on one of their episodes, they put to death the old myth that we know as the five second rule. They did their experiment and they found no matter how brief something lands on the floor after a certain amount of time, it eventually picks up disgusting and nasty bacteria that you probably don't want to put into your mouth. They ran another experiment and found it is not so easy to take candy from a baby. And if you drop a penny from the Empire State Building, you won't kill anybody. You won't sink in quicksand and a host of other things that have just been passed off down through the ages as being true. Savage and Heinemann have found out, no, in actuality, it's really just a myth. It's not just popular culture, though. The same thing is true about the Bible. There are things that have just been sort of passed down, down through time as being biblically true that are not. And sometimes in the grand scheme of things, they're harmless. For example, that the fruit that Eve ate in the Garden of Eden was an apple or that Noah preached for 120 years or that as Jesus was taking the cross up to Calvary, the weight of the cross was so overwhelming that he actually fell and crumbled underneath the weight of the cross. You see, all of these things often passed off as being true aren't actually stated in the Bible. We just have kind of imbibed them and accepted them. But, you know, there are other myths that are more serious. Myths that people believe about God and about Christianity and about Jesus that often cause unbelievers and skeptics to want nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus. And that also may cause Christians to fail to enjoy the Christian life to the fullest. The Bible tells us in John chapter one and verse 14 that Jesus came as the embodiment of truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. In John 14 and verse six, he says about himself, I am the truth. And when he preached to the audiences, he would say, you can know the truth. John 8 and verse 32. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you make your way through the Gospels. One thing becomes apparent, and that is Jesus was and is concerned with people knowing the truth. And coupled with that idea is Jesus wanted people to know what they were getting themselves into as they were drawn to him through the truth. The last thing he wanted individuals to do was to be mistaken about him and about Christianity. And perhaps it's true, just like in popular culture, Christianity has been going on for some almost 2000 years. And maybe there are some things that have just kind of slipped in that weren't in it to start with. And we just have kind of digested these things. And it's to our betterment that we find out that those things really aren't true. They're actually myths so that we can be truth lovers. And in so being, we find ourselves embracing the Jesus who ultimately gave us truth. If our feelings are hurt because we believe some things that aren't true, it'd be better for us that our souls are saved. And so this morning, let's just work through a few of these myths and see what the Bible actually is saying and find ourselves aligned with the truth so that we can be on the same page with Jesus. Here's the first one. Number one, Christianity should be easy. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, when you get to verse 13, Jesus says, enter in at the straight gate or at the narrow gate, because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many people are going in there at. 
but entering at the straight gate or the difficult gate because that gate, he says, the way is difficult, but it leads to life and there are few individuals that find it. You know, sometimes people think about Christianity, that Christianity is supposed to be easy. After all, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew 11 and verse 30. First John 5 and verse 3, John says his commandments are not burdensome. And yet Jesus teaches that Christianity in and of itself is not by any means an easy endeavor. If you notice in your Bible in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14, the way that Jesus describes the way that leads to life, the ESV calls it the hard way. The New American Standard and others call it the difficult way. Jesus was by no means suggesting that God was going to make it hard for people to go to heaven or that it was impossible to live a good and a godly life. And yet at the same time, he wanted nobody to be mistaken about what it meant to follow him and how that could occasionally be trying. You see, sometimes people get frustrated. They come to Christianity and they wonder, why is it hard for me to do the things that God would have me to do? We expect that reading the Bible and praying and living a spirit led life and making sound decisions based on Christian principles should be easy because, after all, I'm trying to do the right thing. And yet Jesus tells us up front, it is not going to be easy. It's going to be extremely difficult. The word he uses here for the hard or difficult way, it's a word that means constricted or difficult that could make it easy, hard to travel. And it's going to be hard. John 16 and verse 33, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. In John 15 and verse 18 and in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, you'll be hated because they hated me first. You'll be reviled. Your name will be cast out as evil and you'll be persecuted because of your relationship with me. Matthew chapter five, verses 10 and 11. Christianity easy. Jesus said the exact opposite. It's a myth in our culture that the Christian life is the easy life. Jesus says it's actually the difficult life. One of the ways that Paul likes to talk about our Christianity in the New Testament is he describes it as spiritual warfare. So in Ephesians chapter six, for example, in verse 12, Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. We're to put on the armor of God so that we can do battle. One of the reasons why the Bible describes Christianity as being engaged in warfare is because we're really at war. There are few things more dangerous than living like a civilian when you're supposed to be living like a soldier. Endure hardness for the Lord's sake. No man that is engaged in war entangles himself with civilian affairs so that he might please the one who's enlisted him to be a soldier. Second Timothy two, three and four. Paul says, don't think you're a civilian. You're actually behind enemy lines engaged in warfare. Expect it to be difficult. He often talks about fighting the good fight of faith or battling the good battle, which just was a way in the first century outside of Bible terminology to say you are to engage in war and go on successful war campaigns over and over again throughout your life so that you might please the king who called you. For us, it's our heavenly king and we shouldn't be surprised. In Luke 14, in the reading that Stephen read for us a moment ago, Jesus says in that passage, I want you to make sure that you count the cost. Just like a builder needs to count the cost before he ever draws up the blueprints, just like an army commander needs to count the cost before he ever declares war. You and I need to count the cost to follow Jesus, not so that we can assess whether or not we want to do it. And if we walk away, Jesus says that's okay, but so that we won't get into Christianity and be frustrated when we realize how hard it often can be. Jesus doesn't need anything that we have, but he wants exactly everything that we've got. Luke 14 and verse 33, likewise, whosoever there be of you that doesn't forsake everything that he has can't be my disciple. The first myth that people sometimes believe about Christianity is Christianity should be easy. Here's number two. I'm a Christian. 
And therefore, sin shouldn't be a struggle anymore. Turn your Bible to first John chapter one. You know, there are a few things as exciting as coming up out of those waters of baptism. And as was prayed a moment ago by Clint, there have been several here recently who have obeyed the gospel and realizing that all of your sins are forgiven and that God has washed away your sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. Few things can bring greater joy to our lives. But sometimes we're shocked after becoming Christians that we still struggle with sin. There's this idea that now I'm in Jesus and sin shouldn't be a difficulty for me anymore. Sin shouldn't be a struggle. But notice first John chapter one and verse eight. John says, if anybody says that he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. First John 1 and verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. It's a myth to assume and to believe. Now that I'm a Christian, sin won't be a struggle for me anymore. You know, nobody says to themselves, you know, I'm going to go home this afternoon, vacuum my rug, vacuum my carpet. It'll be Stanley Steen forever. Never have to do that again. Nobody takes their car through a car wash and say, well, I've pretty much taken care of that. Nobody takes a shower and says, I'm clean once and for all. We all know it. And yet we allow our consciences to be shocked concerning this reality. I've been baptized in the waters of baptism. All of my sins have been forgiven. I've declared myself done with sin. And we're often shocked that sin's not through with us. No, the Bible says that when you're a Christian, there has been a difference. There has been a change. Sin will no longer be our master, but that doesn't mean that sin will no longer be a struggle. There's a difference. Romans chapter six and verse 12 says that we are not under the dominion of sin to obey it in its passions. Or Romans six and verse 14, Paul says you won't serve sin because you are not under the law, but you're under grace. And yet we will struggle. I wish Paul said sometimes in first Timothy chapter one and verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was chief. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul actually speaks in the present tense. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Even after becoming a Christian, Paul realized, you know what? Sin was still a struggle. It's to Christians that the Bible says in Hebrews 12 and verse one, even after you've obeyed the gospel, sin easily entangles us or clings closely to us. It's a part of who we are. We still struggle with it. Simon, the sorcerer, was saved, sanctified and redeemed. And yet he struggled with his sins. Acts chapter eight, verses 18 through 24. Peter was an apostle, wrote two New Testament letters. And yet Peter still struggled with his hypocrisy. Galatians 2, 11 and 12. And Barnabas may very well be the most well-rounded Christian in all of the New Testament. But Galatians 2 and verse 13 says even Barnabas was on occasion carried away with the hypocrisy. Why was that the case? It's because he was and is a human being. And so are you. And so am I. It's a myth to believe I'm a Christian. And so therefore, I won't struggle with sin anymore. I've obeyed the gospel. And so now all of my hardships are behind me. No, that's far from the case. The reality is you and I still will struggle. We beat ourselves up to our own detriment when we think to ourselves, you know what? I've obeyed the gospel. I've become a Christian. I thought my anger by now would have been eradicated. I know a lot of Bible verses. Why is it the case that I'm still struggling with my attitude toward other people? I would really like to subdue my tongue and get it under control. James chapter three and verse two. James says nobody can do that perfectly. I would hate. I hate lusting. Why do I? Why does my mind? I wish I could just shut that off and my mind never go that way anymore. And yet the Bible says so long as we're in these earthly tabernacles, we are not under the dominion of sin, but we will be struggling with sin until we meet our God. Philippians two and verse 12 says 
Now is not only in my presence only, but much more in my absence. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Somebody says, I'm struggling with sin. That must have meant since I was baptized and the moment I was baptized and the days that followed, I didn't immediately cease to sin. Maybe I wasn't sincere. Maybe my baptism really didn't take. Maybe I should do it again. I've been a Christian for some time and I'm kind of struggling with some of the same things. Maybe I'm not as strong as I should be in Christ. No, maybe. Just maybe that means you're a human. James five and verse 11, he says, we count them happy, which endure. We're to press on toward the goal. See, believing this myth is dangerous because it allows us to focus on the wrong thing. Rather than focusing on what God actually wants from us, what we actually can deliver, which is honesty, confession, repentance and faithfulness. We spend our entire lives worried about sinless perfection, which we never can give to God. It's a shield that sounds sincere, but it keeps us from giving God what he actually wants, which is I just want you to be open, honest, confess. And I want you to never settle. But this myth says sin shouldn't be a struggle anymore, because after all, I'm a Christian. Here's the next one. Number three. No one is perfect and therefore some sin is okay. It makes sense that this myth would follow the one mentioned right before it because people often get these things mixed up. We say to ourselves, well, if it is the case that everybody's going to struggle with sin, then it must also be the case that, hey, nobody's perfect. So everybody's going to sin sometime. In Romans chapter five and verse 20, Paul says where sin did abound, grace did all the more abound. And you would assume from that some people did. Well, the more I sin, the more grace I get. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Paul says grace does abound over sin, but that's never an excuse to do so. Or in first John, we were just in first John a moment ago where John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But John follows that up in first John two, one and two with these words. My little children, these things we're writing to you so that you do not sin. But if any man sins, he has an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, it's a myth to believe that, well, since everybody's going to sin, since some sin is inevitable, well, then that just must mean it's okay to harbor and hold on to some of my own. But the New Testament says that's not true. It's a myth. And at this point, some people are confused. They're saying, well, wait a minute. On the one hand, we're going to struggle with sin. That's just a part of being a human being. But then on the other hand, the Bible is also teaching me that some sin is not okay, even though I will fall short. Just about everybody in this auditorium. I want to say everybody in this auditorium that has a car has car insurance. Shake or not. Yes, hopefully. But nobody. Nobody that has car insurance would take their car, run it into the median or ram it into the side of somebody's car, phone up their insurance company and say, well, I just ran my car into the median. They say, what'd you do that for? Well, I've got insurance after all, and that's why I've got it to do things like this. Nobody with homeowners insurance is going to go home this afternoon, start busting out windows, busting out walls, call their insurance company and say, hey, I've got insurance for this very purpose, for reasons like these. Pay up. Nobody goes to the dentist. Nobody with celery and all 32 teeth. And when the dentist says, hey, why are your teeth rotting and yellowing? You say, well, listen, after all, it doesn't matter how much you brush them, how much you floss them. Things eventually get in everybody's teeth. And so since it's inevitable, I've just accepted my placky destiny. This is what it is. And there's nothing I can do about it. No. In every instance, we know a safety net is no excuse to live unsafely. 
Just because God says, yes, you will sin and fall short. That is no permission from God to say you ought to live recklessly and just go for it and do whatever you want. Hey, there's grace. And so that means I don't get to live godly. No, far from it. Grace actually teaches the opposite. Titus 2 and verse 11, Paul says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, training us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's redeemed us by his own blood to purchase for himself a special people for his own possession. The grace of God is not permission to live however we want and do whatever we want. It's to say to us, I want you to live right. And some sin's not okay, just because sin's inevitable. Christians will be struggling with sin to the day we die. We can't escape it, but we don't have God's approval to excuse it. It's said in boxing matches that there's roughly somewhere about 60 punches thrown by each boxer per round with a strike rating of about one punch every three seconds. It would be foolish for a person, man or woman, to say, I want to be a boxer, but I never plan to get hit. That would be foolish. But on the other hand, it would also be foolish to say, since I'm going to be hit as a boxer, I never plan to throw any punches back. You see, the second point of this lesson says, hey, you're a spiritual boxer. Don't jump into the ring of life just because you've been baptized and say, I'm never going to be hit with sin again. But point three of this lesson says you cannot have God's approval if you stop swinging back. God can't be pleased with us if we simply say, hey, well, this is spiritual boxing. And occasionally the devil lands some punches. There's nothing we can do about that. Sin is a reality of the human experience. And since I'm going to be hit, I might as well throw in the towel. No, the Bible says if you're God's person. You had better always be punching back. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double minded. James four, seven and eight. They withstood the devil because they didn't love their lives unto death. And they clung to the lamb who purchased their lives. Revelation 12 and verse 11. We'll be struggling with sin the rest of our lives. But there's a difference. Christians do not submit to sin, but sinners do. And we're to be putting up a fight and refusing to give place to the devil. Ephesians 4 and verse 27. Here's the next one. There's this myth in our culture that faith is simply blind belief. You know, there are people that are not Christians. This is for the non-Christian that says, you know, there are some things about Christianity I just can't accept. And one of the myths is that faith is blind belief. People on this side of the aisle, they hear us quote passages like 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. And what they hear us saying is we walk by fairy tales and not by logical common sense. Stephen Hawking died in 2018. He was called a world-renowned physicist. Here's what Hawking says about faith and his belief about it or lack thereof. He says, I believe the human brain is a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife. We're all just broken down computers. This is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Hawking says, listen, there is no heaven. I can't be a Christian because faith is just a blind leap in the dark. We're all just broken down computers. And when we're finished, we're finished. But what if Hawking's wrong? What if in the face of overwhelming evidence, unbelief is the person who's been deceived because they're afraid of the light? You know, even sometimes Christians, when they're pressed about why they believe the things they believe, will just kind of throw in the towel and say things like, in view of this myth, because we've drunken it down. Well, you just have got to believe. You just have got to accept it. I don't know why I believe this, but you just have to believe. But what if that's not biblical faith? 
What if in view of all of the evidence that God has given us, things that we can see and experience and touch based on those realities, God says, now you can trust me for the unseen. Hebrews 11 and verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. You see, it's a myth that faith is just a blind leap in the dark that we just go along. We believe in God not because somebody has handed it down to us in a long, deceptive game of the telephone game, and now we have no idea why we believe the things that we believe. We believe in God because we know something can't come from nothing. Hebrews 3 and verse 4. We believe in God because we know somebody gave us these moral laws that govern our lives. Romans 2, 14 through 16. We believe in God because we appreciate and realize that we are intricately designed and so is our universe. And so that says someone with infinite wisdom and also infinite power had to create everything we see and know. Romans 1, 19 through 21. We believe Jesus was raised from the dead because we actually have the inspired eyewitness accounts of individuals who saw him after he got out of the tomb. First Corinthians 15, three through eight. It's not the case that Christianity is simply a blind leap in the dark. No, far from it. Christianity is founded on evidence. And we assuredly believe these things because we've accepted the evidence that God's given us. It's not the case that we simply believe that the Bible's inspired because, hey, our parents did and our grandparents did and people gave us the Bible. No, the Bible bears the marks of a book that we would expect to be reading if it really did come from God. Second Timothy three and verse 16 says all scripture is God breathed is come from God himself and it bears the marks. It's predictive prophecy, historical accuracy, high moral ethic and unity across 1600 years screams out loud. It couldn't possibly be the production of men. And it's based on that that we believe and not just because we hope so. It's ultimately because we know so. And people every single day, Christian, theist, agnostic, use this kind of belief and nobody bats an eye. You just drive down the road today and see an American flag just waving out in the open and nobody with any kind of common sense and logic believes, well, that flag's waving like that because some fly was buzzing and let out a big, deep breath and blew it. And now that flag's waving from side to side. No, somebody says it's a windy day. You've never seen the wind. You can't touch it. But to deny its presence would be to deny the obvious. And though we have no recorded footage of God. Though we can't see him, we can't touch him to see the grand effect of our world and our lives and who we are as people would be to deny the obvious. No, it's not the Christian who's afraid of the dark. And so we accept things and we don't believe the truth. It's the unbeliever in view of all of the evidence that God's given us that says, you know what? I'd rather wallow in unbelief. Christians, first Peter three and verse 15. We know why we believe the things we do. And to say that faith is simply a blind leap in the dark, a better felt than told story is simply a myth. Here's the next one. Christianity is all about being good and going to church. This is a myth about what Christianity is truly about. Listen, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that we ought to assemble together and not abandon the assembling as of the saints as the habit of some is. We need to be present where the people of God are. But we lower the bar of Christianity far lower than where Jesus placed it. If all Christianity is about is about going to church and being good. It's about far more than that. We lower the bar of Christianity when our view of faithfulness is tied so closely merely to attendance that we kind of summarize Christianity this way. If you show up and you're not bad, you're good. And by not being bad, all we mean is you were baptized. You're here. You're present. Listen, Jesus never told anybody that that's what Christianity was about. 
Every faithful Christian that can be here will always be here. But just being here doesn't mean that a person's pleasing to God. Luke 9 and verse 23, Jesus says, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, Christianity isn't just about being at the right place at the right time, doing the right stuff. It's about living the crucified life. It's about a rebellion against the powers that be in this world as we interrupt unrighteousness and say we will live for the God who made this world originally, even on the devil's turf. Surely Christians do good. Galatians 6 and verse 10. But what you and I have to ask ourselves is this. If you lay my life next to the life of an unbeliever who is a good and moral person, is there any difference? This person believes that, hey, you ought to be nice, you ought to be a good person, you ought to treat other people like you want to be treated, and I'm a Christian. Our lives pretty much the same. Surely Jesus' standards are higher than the world's standards. Rather than asking simply, are we good, we should be asking, are we godly? Ephesians 5 and verse 1, be followers of God as dear children, Ephesians 5 and verse 1. Christianity is not just about getting in this building and doing good things, being good people. It's about being radically changed. Because we believe the truths that Jesus has given us in Scripture. And now that's transformed our lives and we want it to change everybody we meet. It's what the people said in Thessalonica about the Christians in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. These individuals who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. How did they turn the world upside down? Because they were living their lives for Jesus. And that's what God wants every one of us to do. Here's the next one. It's a myth about Christianity. God will solve all your problems. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, it's said about Paul in verse 8 that he begged God three times to remove his thorn in the flesh. And God didn't do it. In verse 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, a lot of people on this myth hear God saying things that God never, ever said. Trophimus was left sick in Miletus. Joseph was in prison, shackled and mistreated, according to Psalm 105, verse 17 and 18. Paul was shipwrecked, and so was Peter and John being thrown in prison and beaten. And all of these individuals were loved, adored, and appreciated by God. And yet, God didn't remove their problems. The Bible teaches us that we should pray when we face hardship. But we should always end those prayers with this statement that Jesus gives us in Matthew 26 and verse 39. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Beware of getting angry and frustrated at God for breaking promises that he never made. But we sometimes believe this myth. We get upset. We say, hey, I'm a Christian and I prayed. And why didn't God help me? Why didn't God hear me? There's nobody better than them. Of all people in the world, why are they suffering that way? As if in our goodness, we're kind of shielded from the harsh realities of life. I can't believe X has happened to this person because after all, they're one of God's favorite people. Why would God allow it to happen to them? See, that's a myth. It's a myth to believe that if you're a really good Christian, I mean, if you're really good, God won't allow anything bad to happen. No, God's promised something better. God has promised not the thorn free life, but the Christ empowered life. God has promised your problems won't always leave you and neither will I. I will never leave you nor abandon you. I remember the promises made to the fathers. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 31. Be not dismayed. Don't be afraid. I'm your God. I will help you and strengthen you, uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. All of the people we mentioned in the Bible who suffered mightily. Rather than having their problems removed, they got something better. They got the presence of almighty God. And we've got to ask ourselves, which would we prefer? 
A life with no thorns, without the presence of God, or a life with all of his thorns, all of his thistles, all of his hardship, but a God who says, I will never, and I mean never, leave you. Psalm 31 and verse 28. You see, the Bible says there are three worlds. There's the first world of Adam and Eve. We can't go back there. Genesis 3, 22 through 24. We've been cut off from that world. There's a world to come where God says we'll live with him forever. Second Peter three and verse 13. And then there's our present world with all of its hardships, all of its difficulties. And yes, the blessings of almighty God. But if you and I get confused about which world we live in, we'll be frustrated when life comes tumbling in. We will never go back to world number one. And we can't get to world number three without first living faithfully for God in world number two. And so what we should do is reject this myth that says God's going to solve all my problems and instead believe the truth. I'll never leave you. I won't abandon you. I'll go with you all the way. Here's the next one. If you're a Christian, you can't enjoy your life. And maybe a Christian hears this and they think, surely this couldn't be a myth. After all, the Bible says, love not the world. First John two fifteen. Seek things which are above Colossians chapter three, verses one through five. And if you go back and read every passage in the Bible where Christians are told not to love the world and actually read the passages and what God's saying, he's never telling us not to love the world, the physical creation that he's made. Instead, he's arguing, I want you to make sure you don't love the sin that's in the world. In John 15 and verse 11, Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so that you might abide in me and your joy may be full. John 16 and verse 24, Jesus says, hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and receive so that your joy may be full. But it's a myth that the Christian life has come to to suck out all the fun. And if you become a Christian, listen, you can forget about happiness. You can forget about enjoying your life because God doesn't want anybody to have a good time. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible says that God's given us all things richly to enjoy. First Timothy 6, 17. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, James 1 and verse 17. Turn your Bible to Acts 14. Go to Acts 14 and notice what Paul told these pagan individuals when he was in the area of Derby and Lystra about God and about why God gives us good things. Notice Acts 14 and verse 17. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. And then Paul says in verse 17, our God did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, the first part of this says that God gave us all of these things to lead us to himself. But the rest of the verse says God gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness for our enjoyment. That means every meal that you've ever ate. Just think about Miss Dana's carrot cake, right? They'll be serving that at the gates, I believe, right? Every beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Every beautiful flower with all of its rays and hues of color, every wholesome laugh you've ever enjoyed has come from a God that says, I want you to know true joy because he is satisfied with us when we're satisfied in him. God doesn't just want us to experience joy. He's the one who's authored it. But it's the greatest myth of all time to say, you know, the God of the Bible, he's not interested in our joy. How do you hear this verse? Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat thereof you will surely die. Is your God a God of yes or a God of no? Because according to Genesis 2.17, he's a God of yes. He says of this one tree, Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of it. But there was an untold number of yes trees in the garden, and he says you can eat all of that you want. According to Genesis 2 and verse 9, there were other trees there for their sight, for their enjoyment, for their pleasure, for their goodness. God's a God of yes, but the devil says let's talk about the one tree about which God said no. 
Because God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. God's a God of no. But the Bible says, no, he's actually a God of yes. Like a waiter that prepares a delicious meal for customers. God lays out his goodness and glory before us in the world. And as we get prepared to partake, he has one word for his creation. Enjoy. He made his world good, very good. He doesn't want us to sin. The things that the world promises to give us pleasure is actually fool's gold. It doesn't bring pleasure in our lives. But it's a myth to suggest God doesn't want his people to experience any joy. Here's the next one. Good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. This is a simple way of kind of breaking down Christianity for a lot of people. The good people go to heaven and the bad people go to hell. The Bible never teaches this. This is one that's just kind of been slipped in over the past almost 2000 years that people accept and believe about Christianity. According to the Bible, apart from Jesus Christ, there are no good people. Romans 3, 9 through 12, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that seeks after God. None understands. All have gone their own way. No, the Bible actually says the saved people go to heaven and the lost people go to hell. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, Paul says, when the Lord Jesus comes back with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he'll take vengeance on those that don't know God and those that don't obey the gospel. That means it's imperative for everybody of appreciable and accountable age to obey the gospel because nobody's going to heaven just because they were a good person. Jonathan Edwards says that in the end, your goodness has about as much power to stop you from plunging into the depths of hell apart from the work of Christ as a spider web does to stop a falling rock. You cannot be saved because you were a good person. I've met people, they say, Hiram, listen, I don't go to church and I'm not religious, but I'm a pretty good person. I'm actually better than most people in churches. In fact, if there is a heaven, I'm going. And as long as people believe this myth, the devil smiles because he knows that our ultimate salvation is tied to the events that happened almost 2000 years ago in Judea under the reign of the governor Pontius Pilate when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and how we respond to those events and put our faith and trust in him. That's what saves us, not merely our human behavior. It means if you're a good person, but you've never obeyed the gospel, you should probably be trying to figure out what does it mean to obey the gospel and respond to Jesus faithfully. But it also means if you have. You appeal to his goodness and not yours. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 30. Two more. Here's number nine. I know y'all are like, is there more? Yeah, there's there's two more. Number nine. Bad examples speak for us all. So many people say I just could never be a Christian because I've met too many Christians that are hypocrites. And after all, bad examples speak for all the Christians. I mean, if this person claims to be a Christian and look at how they're behaving, then surely I don't want to be one. Nobody hates religious hypocrisy more than God. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, John says there are some individuals who went out from us. If they were of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they've gone away from us so that it might be made evident that they are not really of us. It's a myth to say that bad examples speak for all Christians everywhere. That just because some people who are just really good actors and the Bible accepts that there are some people that just really can perform well in ways that we can't even see. We've got no idea that this individual was actually a phony. And God says in the judgment, I'm going to separate the wheat from the tares. Matthew 13, 36 through 43. But nobody gets a pass on fulfilling their role in this life because they met a Christian who was a good actor. God says, I want you to live right, regardless of if there have been bad examples. Nobody says, you know, I went to Kroger one time and there was a pretty mean cashier. I'm never going back to another grocery store. 
Nobody says, I got a bad diagnosis from a doctor once upon a time. I don't trust medical professionals. I'm dying and I'm not going to see any doctor because you just, I mean, you just can't trust people like that. Nobody says, I met a shiesty car salesman one time and so they're all crooked. I'm never buying another car again in my life. No, we know that there are always bad apples, but they don't actually spoil the whole bunch. A Judas can't replace a Jesus. Demas doesn't silence Demetrius. Hypocrites never do away all the good of God's true heavenly ambassadors. Second Corinthians five and verse 20. Somebody says, yeah, but I put my trust in a preacher and an elder, a good person, and they let me down. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry for everybody that names the name of Christ. We're not always everything we should be. But hear me well. The goal of Christianity is always to be like Christ and not your favorite Christian. We are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Our unity draws people toward Jesus. But Christianity does not stand or fall on his practitioners. The truth of Christianity stands or falls on Jesus Christ and whether he was really raised from the dead. And all of the misbehaving children of God down through the centuries don't have enough power to put him back in the tomb. This is a myth. Bad examples speak for us all. Christians are hypocrites. I'm not going to church because everybody's like that. It's just not true. Here's the tenth and final one. Number ten. You must fix yourself first before you come to God. So many people have never come to Jesus because they believe it's up to them to do it for themselves first. I should become a Christian. I should change my life, but I've got to fix myself first. I've got to do it on my own. Today, most movie stunts are done by computer gimmicks and graphics, but Jackie Chan has long been known for doing his own stunts. What a lot of people don't know, though, is it's come at a great cost to Chan. He's pretty much lost the hearing in one of his ears, almost lost an eye. He suffered a broken vertebrae on his spine. In one of his stunts, his legs were so crushed between these two cars that now he walks with a sort of different gait. He's broken a cheekbone and a jawbone. It's dangerous and deadly to try to do your own stunts. And spiritually speaking, yes, you can't be saved without repentance. The Bible says if you don't repent, you'll perish. Luke 13 and verse 3. But to think to yourself, I've got to do all my own stunts. I've got to get myself in a certain condition so that then God will save me is to crush and damage your soul irreparably when the Bible says Jesus was already crushed for you. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was on our behalf. And so you don't have to fix yourself first. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, thieves, covetous, idolaters, adulterers, people that practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't live how you want and go to heaven. The Bible says you can't. But verse 11 says you are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. See, all of those are passive. You are washed, sanctified, justified. Jesus is the one who fixes us and cleans us up in a way we could never do ourselves. And the devil will leave us right where we are, believing this myth, refusing to respond to Jesus because, well, I've got to fix myself first and then I'll come to him. No, we've got to believe in Jesus and what he's done. Be willing to change our mind and our behavior. And then when we've done that, we come to Jesus and he's the one that fixes us. There are some myths that really aren't of any consequence. They're not true, but they won't really do any damage to you if you believe them. But then there are others that if you believe them, you'll believe the wrong things about God or fail to believe in God at all. You'll live your entire Christian life below your spiritual privileges, robbed and starved of the joy that God ultimately wants us to have. You'll live all of your days outside of Christ in an eternal day away from him because you thought you could do what it took his death and resurrection to do, and that is ultimately to fix yourself. 
Jeremy's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If somebody needs to be spiritually repaired by Jesus Christ, he was crushed for our iniquities. You can't do this work yourself. Don't do your own spiritual stunts. It's deadly. It's dangerous. Jesus says, I was made sin on your behalf so you could become righteousness in me. Second Corinthians 521. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation, if you need the prayers of the church because you're a Christian and like us all, you still struggle with sin. We'd be happy to help or assist in any way we can. Come now, us together we stand and as we sing.